Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody, and Happy New Year, and wishing you all a blessed feast of Mary, the Mother of God. We got more to talk about as we continue this Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. We're in the uh, second to last day. We at number four and number three coming up in the next two hours here. And in this first hour, we look at death. Kind of a uh, ironic way to start the year, we look at where we're all eventually going to end. One of the things that I learned as a kid that's really stuck with me was the chaplain at our middle school, who was a priest from Africa. And at the uh, time that he was serving with us, I was in sixth grade, and he'd only been in the U.S. for maybe a year. And my mother asked him, what is the biggest culture shock for you coming from Africa to the West? Thinking it would be something like, oh, how everybody's got cars, everybody's got you know, fancy houses and all that wonderful blessings that we have here. And it wasn't anything related to that. He said, the biggest shock is that Americans are in denial about death. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that a lot of us have this vague understanding that we might die sometime, but there's millions of people who are going to die this week, but millions more are going to die next week. That's just something we have to always remember, that at some point we're going to stand before God. So what does it mean to die? Well, that's another thing. We say this all the time, these things that our culture is losing. There were some depressing statistics out of Canada last year. Uh, late in the fall, Canada released its annual euthanasia report for 2022, and it's a bleak business. Uh, in 2022, there were, they, you know, MAID is medical aid and dying. In 2022, there were 13,241 medical aid and dying provisions reported in Canada, accounting for about 4% of all deaths in Canada. Number of cases of made in 2022 rose at a growth rate of 31.2% over 2021. All provinces except Manitoba and the Yukon continue to experience a steady growth. And when all data sources are considered, the total number of medically assisted deaths reported in Canada since the introduction of federal made legislation in 2016 is 44,958. So that begs the question, what does it mean to die well? We will be exploring that throughout this hour with Dr. Steve Doran, who has written the outstanding book, To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Steve's got a really interesting perspective on this because he's both a neurosurgeon and a Catholic deacon, and he's been trained as a bioethicist. So he can really combine a lot of different angles to give us a very, uh, an, an answer here. And he writes in his preface, I've been a neurosurgeon for over 25 years, and despite the inevitability of death, most of my patients and their families have largely ignored its inescapable reality. I think we all want a good death, but we are not really sure what that means or how to prepare for it. Some of my patients die suddenly and unexpectedly. Some have months of advance notice. Many are somewhere in between. Regardless, they, along with the rest of us, want to do this last thing right. We want them to die well. We want our loved ones to die well. Yet there is not a formula or a one-size-fits-all plan for a good death. As there is an art to medicine, there is an art to dying well. As a deacon, physician, and anesthetist, I accompany patients and their families as they navigate the complex spiritual, medical, and moral challenges that come with the process of dying. He continues, You would think that medical school would have made death more real. 
After all, the first week of class begins with an introduction to your cadaver for that year. If a cadaver can't make death real, what else can? Interestingly, dissecting a cadaver had the opposite effect. This is again from Dr. Doran. Maybe it was a natural defense mechanism, but I never really saw this body as a person. The body in front of me was a collection of formulin-spattered parts and pieces that my inept hands screwedly separated, split open, and eventually discarded. If I had stopped to consider that this body was the remains of a person, maybe I would have stopped altogether under the weight of that revelation. Dr. Doran's book, To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life, is the focus of this entire first hour of conversation at number four in the 2023 Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. And then we explore something else in the next hour, the four dimensions of Eucharistic culture. It's now 2024. We've got about seven months until the Eucharistic revival. We'll be continuing to talk about that. This is one of the best things we've had, I think, on the Eucharist. Tim O'Malley, what does it mean to be a Eucharistic people? That's coming up in the next hour. We're going to skip the news today and get right to this conversation with Dr. Dorn. The best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number four. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. There's a long-standing uh, Catholic tradition about dying well, um, and it may not get quite the attention uh, it deserves, but as one ages and one sees one's friends uh, dying, it, you're bound to ask questions about what does it mean uh, to die well, especially now where we've got such extraordinary uh, medical technology, which is a blessing in so many ways. Um, and we've also got um, advocacy movements uh, in favor of what, what we used to call euthanasia. Uh, it's more euphemistically called now medical assistance in dying. And I mentioned earlier that uh, Canada has just released its annual euthanasia report and says that more than 13,000 Canadians uh, received uh, euthanasia one way or the other last year. And that's roughly 4% of all the deaths in the country. Uh, in the United States, uh, again, this conversation is going to continue on. My guest, Dr. Stephen Dorn, is a part of that conversation. He is a practicing neurosurgeon in Omaha. And he recently has authored the book, To Die Well, a Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. He has over 25 years of experience. He's a board-certified neurosurgeon. He's also permanent deacon. He serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He writes professionally uh, in you know, academic journals and national media outlets on topics of bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders. Uh, he and his wife, Sharon, uh, have five sons and are co-founders of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Steve, good to have you back here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Al. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be back. Uh, this is, I think, a great contribution. Uh, I'm excited about it. I, I think that, um, you know, especially as we see baby boomers aging, we see really fundamental questions about, uh, quote, a good death, uh, uh, and what does that mean? So let me start there, in fact, because I think many people might be surprised 
to know that uh, in the history of Catholic thought and pastoral practice, there has been uh, an emphasis on having a, quote, good death. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the history here and what the church means by a good death. Yeah, and I I think even before we dive into that, I think it's important for us to define what the church believes death is. And then you can see how this all all grows from that, right? Sure. So, So death is the unnatural separation of the soul from the body. Uh, separation of the soul from the, that's what death is. And so if we start with that premise, then we can see where what the church teaches about death, it all flows from that reality of what of what the definition of death is. And so uh, and it's been that way from 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 time beginning, you know, even as far back as you know, St. Paul, he would he was he would talk about the the you know, our our bodiliness and and um our souls and um and all of this being uh, the goodness of our our uh, grace being infused to us at, at our baptism. So, so yeah, this this history began just immediately after the 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 death and and uh, resurrection of Christ. And so, so that's where it's fundamentally started with. Um, and so, but then later you um, see that um, uh, there became more formal uh, teachings, uh, or uh, maybe I would say resources that came out. Back in the uh, uh, the Black Plague, um, you know, a third of the population of I think it was about a third of the population of Europe died, and that included the clergy. And yeah. so, um, individuals didn't have access to the clergy for the sacraments. And so, there's this pamphlet that went went around and had a couple different um, versions went on, but it basically, it was meant to help people um, uh, prepare for death. And um, and it starts off by saying. Um, the very opening line of this book, which was called The Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying, it said, it's very important that everyone should have the art of dying well, but very rarely does someone prepare himself properly for death at the right time, as everyone believes they're going to live for a long time, and they never believe that they're so close to death. Yeah. I mean, of course, the great irony, that hasn't changed, has it? Alan? No, it's, it's, that, that's still exactly the what we deal with now. Yeah. 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 So this, these pamphlets kind of circulated and were very helpful. They had these these beautiful woodblock paintings to, to to instruct the faithful. Then what was really good a couple of hundred years later, uh, Saint Robert Bellarmine he he published this devotional work, which you can get um, you know for next to nothing online. You know, um, uh, called the Art of Dying Well, and um, highly recommend it. Um, and he he starts off with what you know should be self evident. He says that he who lives well will die well. Hmm. He who lives well will die well. And so, so again, this kind of harkens back to our, our baptism, right? The, the, the life of, of discipleship, the life of grace, the life of living well begins with our baptism. And so, so I think that's, that's a really important thing for us to consider. This isn't just something that happens to us at the end of our life. You know, it's, it's a process, it's a journey that begins from the moment of our birth and our baptism. I know it's difficult to get outside of our own time uh, and place, but I'm just curious, uh, do you think, uh, are we today, uh, we've removed, we, death is often hidden. Um, we, people go to uh, nursing homes, funerals are no longer associated with homes, wakes don't take, don't take place in homes. Um, and there's a lot of, a, a lot of attention to 
hiding death, repressing it, keeping it away from us. Do you have any sense if that's worse today than it was a few centuries ago? Well, I I think in many ways it it, it is worse because what's happened is is that... um, you know, uh, illness and disease, uh, healthcare in general has become what I would say medicalized. You mm-hmm. know, what, what do I mean by that? Medicalized in that, you know, disease and death are are the enemy, and that technology and medicines are the weapons against that enemy. And then if um, um, we lose that battle between those two things, well, then we might as well just give up altogether and move on to the next problem. So, I think more and more patients regrettably are seen as a, a problem to solve or a challenge to solve as opposed to a person. And I think it comes back to the the fact that the, the spiritual realities of, of who we are as a unified body and soul are are uh, neglected, forgotten, never never appreciated. And we're seen as, um, you know, kind of this dualism where there's this separation of the spiritual from the from the corp or the spiritual from the bodily. And and um, and that feeds into our culture in so many different ways. You know, this this you know the sacred and the secular have to be separate from each other. The the bodily and the spiritual have to be separate from each other. And I think unfortunately, medicine is bought into that. If nothing else has maybe even fueled the fire. I'm just curious, uh, from the standpoint of your own career, uh, have you? What's it like to be, you know, an observant Catholic who actually? integrates his faith with his uh, medical practice. I mean, you're concerned to be faithful in these matters. Does that give, is that difficult uh, within this uh, ethos uh, of medicalizing death? Well, um, the difficulty probably is more an internal struggle than anything. Um, you know, it's kind of funny how that, that physicians by and large don't don't confront each other, which you would think they'd be willing to call each other out or call each other on, but they don't. They kind of keep in their little silos. And so if there's people out there, physicians out there who, who don't, who, who are, un, who are uncomfortable with integration by faith in their practice, they keep it to themselves. Maybe they feel something, but that they, they certainly don't express it to me. Mm. And I'll tell you that certainly patients, if given the opportunity and all, all it takes is just a little crack, the door has to open just a tiny bit. You know, a patient might say something like, Oh, you know, people are praying for me or, God bless you, whatever the case may be, there, if there's this little window opening, it becomes a chance to to, to now bring faith into that uh, relationship between the physician and the patient. And I have never, ever had any patient ever uh, reject um, the offer of her prayer. Now, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm careful, you sure. know, cautious, you know, I should say prudent, I guess would be a better word, you know, not to impose or proselytize. But but I think that, that the battle primarily speaking for myself and maybe other people can uh, relate with this, the battle's an, an internal one. It's one of fear. It's one of a sense of inadequacy, uh, maybe regret over past sins, feeling unworthy, whatever the case may be. So, so I think any disciple faces those same fears. Well, I shouldn't, shouldn't you know, uh, uh, assume anything about anybody else. I'll just say for myself, okay. <laughs> that's my problem. You know, that's my problem. Everybody's got their own issues, but... Yeah. But yeah, it's it's an internal battle. It really is. You know, um, my I my mother passed away last year, and I was there, and um, we did everything we could to ensure a, a good death. Uh, of course, you know, you never know what a person is experiencing. Um, 
but it was certainly a peaceful death. Is a good death the same as a peaceful death? Well, that's what our secular society certainly would like us to believe, and certainly yeah. those are beautiful things. And I'm 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 so sorry for your loss, but also so grateful that you were there with her. And, yeah. and that's what I mean. That's what I would desire for myself and for my wife and my kids that you know we have the chance to be together, to pray together, to say our goodbyes, to um, not be overwhelmed by suffering and pain and. And yes, that is a good death, but is that the definition of a good death? Heavens, no. I mean, Jesus Christ had the, the, the perfect death, the greatest death par excellence, and he had the most horrific death, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um and just have to look at the saints, you know, the the saints who've suffered so much throughout their lives or towards the random martyrs. And so yeah, the absence of suffering is while it's desirable, is not the hallmark of a good death by any means. Okay. Um Let's. Uh, we're gonna, a break is going to be coming up on us in just a moment here, uh, and I, I'm going to want to come back on the other side of the break and discuss this uh, concern. I mean, in Canada now, euthanasia has become quite accepted. Looks from the report that I saw, over four percent, four point one percent of deaths are listed as uh, euthanasia deaths, and we don't see that, of course, here in the United States, but. Uh, we we do have places where people can uh, receive quote physician assisted suicide, and I, I want to talk with you about how you see uh, this going in our country, and uh, how Catholics and other Christians can push back uh, against it. My guest is Dr. Stephen Doran. He's the author of To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. I'm Al Cresta. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number four. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me, Dr. Stephen Doran, a neurosurgeon and Catholic deacon who has just published To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. I want to be getting to some of the particular issues uh, associated with uh, dying uh, well uh, as a faithful disciple. Well, we will talk about uh, medically assisted nutrition. We'll talk about withdrawing care. We'll talk about advanced directives and uh, so much more, but I wanted to start out just with a general um, fix on the culture. I mentioned earlier, uh, Steve, that Canada, 4% of its deaths are euthanasia deaths. Are we seeing this same kind of trend in the United States? Yeah, we are. I mean, the numbers aren't the same, but if you look, for example, I, I just checked the, um, they do an annual annual report, um, both in Oregon and uh, California, which are the states that, uh, of, of the states that have assisted suicide, uh, do the most of it. And, you know, and their numbers, uh, why they're not the same by any means as, as, as Canada, the growth, the, the growth of the use of it is, is very similar. Those curves are, um, are just, um, you know, it's like that hockey stick just going up, up, up right now. And yeah. uh, so we're, we're facing this, uh, maybe not at the same scale, but, but certainly on a, on a worrisome trend, which it just, as you know, we, 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 live, in a, we live in a throwaway culture, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and if, if people are seen as a commodity and people are not seen as a unified body and soul, but rather just a commodity, it leads to all sorts of distortions in our culture. 
And on the one end of the spectrum, obviously, abortion. On the other end, uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and then everything in between on how people are treated if we're just seen as a commodity. So, yes, it's definitely an upward trend. Okay. Let me go to some of the issues surrounding uh, death. That I'll start with medically assisted nutrition. That's where you actually, uh, that's your lead chapter in the book. Um, what does the church teach, and why is why is this an issue? Give me a like an. You start out with the story of Mark. Okay, tell me about Mark. So Mark was someone I met um, a few years after he was in this horrific auto accident, and he suffered a severe traumatic brain injury that he survived, but he um, uh, was unable to you know maintain nutrition, hydration on his own. So he so he had. Uh, uh, a feeding tube placed, and um, and I got to know him later on in his uh, life uh, when there's some um, some neurosurgical procedures that needed to be addressed, and that's how I met him and his mom. And so he he's a good example of of someone who who would otherwise have survived if um, you know I'm sorry would not have survived had he not received medically assisted nutrition. Um, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why this is presented early is because I will tell you that I, um, after writing this book, I've had a number of people come back to me and say, oh, I wish I would have had this at the time, or, or I'm so glad I have it now because I'm facing this with a parent. Because the, the one thing that troubles people a lot is, well, am I, am I starving my spouse to death or right. my parent to death or things like that? And And so it's a really important topic and it comes up quite a bit. And it really is one that people find especially distressing now. Mark ultimately died, you know, from complications of a head injury, but he didn't die of, of starvation. You know, we all probably remember that very famous Terry Schiavo case, yeah. you know, where she did, you know, through the court systems, eventually uh, her feeding tube was withdrawn and she did die of starvation. So, so it's a very important issue and it has very uh, practical ramifications uh, associated with it. Now, tell me what the church teaching is on this. Well, it, it would say that... Um, in a basic sense, that nutrition and hydration are are a fundamental right, just like um, uh, housing is for people, and that we we are all owed that very fundamental care. And and it's not treatment. Uh, John Paul made it clear that this isn't treatment. This is care. You know, we are all entitled to food, clothing, you know, a, sh- a head over or a shelter over a head. And so, at the very fundamental level, this is not treatment. It's care. Now that said. That doesn't mean that every person who is nearing death should uh, have a feeding tube placed. And quite honestly, the majority of people really don't. And um, individuals who are actively dying um, are dying of their underlying process. They're not dying because of lack of hydration or nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really it's really a very relatively small number of people um, that that this even becomes an issue. Um, but but for that for that select group, and oftentimes it's people with neurological injuries, you know, stroke, a hemorrhage, or something like that, who are going to survive uh, for uh, past their initial insult. That's where it comes into place. But for people who are, you know, say actively dying of cancer, things like that, it tends not to be an issue as much. Is it difficult for uh, loved ones to uh, assess uh, the medical uh, needs of uh, a patient? And to make a decision whether or not to uh, have uh, feeding tube, uh, nutrition and hydration. I mean, doctors, I get the impression that doctors uh, generally favor uh, not uh, 
nutri- uh, providing a feeding tube. Uh, when when are these times when a, a person says a feeding tube is n- is no longer helpful to my loved one? Well, I think um, there are circumstances where a, a feeding tube isn't helpful. In fact, it, you know, towards the end of life, for example, um, we stop digesting food and and um, uh, or maybe a, a, a patient's really agitated and, and they uh, repetitively pull the tube out. Or, mm. You know, so yeah. there, there's this idea of, of when things become burdensome, that is, the, okay. the benefit uh, is is uh, outweighed by the, the the bad things associated with it. So there certainly are circumstances, even when someone already has a feeding tube, where it just no okay. longer even is helpful, maybe even hurtful to them. I think one of the things you mentioned, you said that physicians aren't, oftentimes aren't overly um, encouraging of feeding tubes. I, I think that's a true statement. And, and I think that I'm not exactly sure why I have my thoughts. I think some of it, maybe there's this uh, tendency sometimes of physicians to try to unknowingly impose their own sense like, well, I wouldn't want that done. I would just want to die, you yeah. know? And so, yeah. they, and so they, they, they impose that on the patient, you know, which is not fair, um, especially, or they just kind of throw out the options at the patient and walk out the door and not really talk about it and mm-hmm. what it really means, what are the consequences. Mm-hmm. And so I think between those two things, maybe their own um, underlying insecurities and just the not willingness to take time, I, I agree with you. I think it's there tends tends to be a, a bias against two feeds. And one of the things about uh, hospice care is wonderful, but one of the things about hospice care is that uh, two, if someone enters hospice care and they don't have a feeding tube, well, one won't be placed. That's kind of against the directives of hospice care. Um, hmm. And and if they do have a feeding tube in place, there's kind of this implicit um, uh, set, sense of, well, we probably should stop using this. Now, that's where I think palliative care, which is a, a different uh, a transition that maybe we'll have some time to talk about, I think is a really good option where patients who are receiving palliative care still can receive treatment, still can receive hydration, nutrition, yet have the recognition that their the death is approaching. So, so I think there's some good options there that need to be um, propo- uh, to presented to the patient. And and so listeners will be asking, well, who do I talk to when I'm facing these kind of situations? Well, that's why this hopefully begins not in the moment of crisis, that it begins long before then. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, the, probably the mo- if, if, if people remember anything from our conversation, that I, I want them to, first of all, start thinking about, praying about, contemplating the reality of their own mortality, the reality of their own death, and and have that time in prayer and contemplation, which then hopefully will move you towards having that conversation with someone that you love, um, someone that you trust, uh, someone who shares your faith, so that you can have that conversation well before it's needed, well before you're in crisis, to say, okay, here, here's what I believe, here's what, the, here's what my faith teaches me, and and so you begin that conversation before it's even even a practical concern. Yeah. How often are you confronted with uh, someone who's found unresponsive at home? EMS is called. Patient is uh, intubated. Breathing tube is placed in there. They arrive uh, at the hospital. Uh, how, how often do you face that kind of situation? Uh, very frequently, because. You know, if you if you if you're unconscious and EMS is, uh, arrives, um, um, uh, assuming you're still alive, that's what's going to happen. You yeah. know, it's the the default is to resuscitate, which is which is appropriate, right? I mean, you sure. if there's an opportunity to save someone's life, that's what should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that um, initial very appropriate decision to 
uh, save someone's life, um, get them to the hospital, and then figure out what's going on, and then we can start making decisions. So right. that, that's actually a very common common thing that I encounter in my practice. And so when people are confused, I think, of when uh, uh, when does treatment become burdensome, and when should they stop life support? Yeah, that's a that and that's very much dependent upon the circumstances at the time, and okay. uh, which include the health of the patient, um, what what the underlying problem is, um, and and this is why I, I think you know um, living wills can be very dangerous because people think that they would only want certain things done or wouldn't want certain things done. They write it down in a document, and then the circumstances are you can't you can't predict what those circumstances might be. And so then having that person who can make decisions for you, who understands kind of in general what your desires are, that's a much more preferable thing because it it is difficult and you can't can't go down some list of do this and do that. When you are confronted with this decision, okay, do I withdraw care now? And is this treatment become burdensome? A treatment that began as, as normal care can become burdensome over time. You know, it's, it's not, not like once it's, um, established care, that means it's always established care. Not at all. I mean, I think common sense tells us that a person who has an incurable cancer receiving chemotherapy initially, over time it becomes clear that that chemotherapy is not effective and becomes burdensome with the side effects. We don't continue that treatment anymore, right? right and I right. think we, we intuit that. I think that's kind of harder sometimes when you have something so dramatic as, okay, someone's suffered some terrible event, now they've been placed on a ventilator, and now now what? And mm-hmm. And there can be, I think, a little bit of a, a misplaced responsibility. People feel like, okay, here's this, here's my loved one. They're on a ventilator, um, and now we have this, um, you know, futile situation where any care is futile, and um, the option of withdrawing care is given. I think they they can sometimes take on this un, unmerited responsibility. Well, if I do this, if I give them permission to withdraw the ventilator, I'm the one who's causing the death, and. Mm. And and that takes some time, you know. I, I I think if anything comes out of this too is that people shouldn't feel rushed in their decisions. Yeah. Um, that people need time, they need support. You know, get all the troops together, get all the family together, help each other make these decisions. Don't feel pressured, but also recognize that ultimately, you know, our lives are in the Lord's hand, right? Yeah. And um and He's the one who knows the day and the hour, and we don't. And and we make decisions with the best information that we have at the time. And so you would urge people to avoid living wills, but re, um, but come up with a, a different type of advanced directive, right? What would it Correct. be called? A durable power of attorney for medical care. Okay, durable power of attorney for medical care. That's the preferred way of going about this. It leaves the decision in the hands of loved ones, uh, not in the hands of technicians. We'll have more to say. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number four. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Stephen Doran, uh, practicing neurosurgeon and also bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. His book is called To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Uh, I want to go to some of the uh, the spiritual considerations, but before I do that, uh, I want to ask about brain death. What? How do we determine when a patient dies uh, in America? 
what's the agreed upon criteria? Well, you know, that's um, that's a very good question and one that is uh, becoming more and more challenged um, in recent times. Mm Mm-hmm. If we draw back even further, it used to be you were dead when your heart stopped and you stopped breathing. That was when people were dead. Yeah, we and, saw um, that in the movies all the time. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> put a mirror to their, their you know, nose, see if it fogs up. Right. And uh, so that changed, though, with uh, organ transplantation. And now there became a need to determine when someone was dead by other criteria so organs could be used. Um, there are some other situations where the definition of death by brain death is Use, but the, the biggest driver for that is is with organ transplantation. Hmm. So, um, you know, a number of years ago, it, it was the determined that a legitimate definition of death was brain death. Um, that is, with the entire brain no longer functioning. And you know, both John Paul II and Benedict XVI gave what I would consider provisional endorsement of that, meaning that as long as there's no ambiguity, as long as it's very clear. You know, this seems to be an appropriate uh, uh, definition of death. But but they also, John Paul also said, you know, the church doesn't make technical decisions. That's not what it's here for. Yeah. And I think it needs, you know, uh, to be open to, you know, as we gather new information and things can change. And, and so what's challenged this idea of brain death as being legitimate definition of death is that uh, more and more um, individuals who have, um, I guess, for lack of a word, survived after being declared brain dead. Um mm-hmm. There is, you know, dozens of women who are pregnant, declared brain dead, who continue to, you know, support the the baby, give birth, you know, for weeks or even months. And even recently in the news, they've there's been some experiments being done where patients who were declared brain dead were then given uh, pig kidneys um, to see if if a pig kidney could be uh, an appropriate. Uh, it was a genetically modified pig kidney to see if that would work. And so, last I saw, one individual was kept was supported on um, life support for months after being declared brain dead yet was being experimented experimented upon wow. with the kidney so it really has raised a whole quagmire of as a, as a brain dead person really dead i think there's a lot of people who think that maybe there's a small portion of the brain called the hypothalamus that probably can can still function well enough uh to help sustain a lot of these other things like blood pressure and even hormone production but there's not a good way to determine whether the hypothalamus is functioning or not so it's it's created a, a real difficult situation where even secular people are saying, well, maybe we should just dump the whole idea of brain death altogether. But unfortunately, the secular people are saying, yeah, well, then we can use other less stringent criteria for for um, obtaining organs. And 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 the church is appropriately pushing back. The bishop saying, no, 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 wait a minute. We can't go that route. We we have to stick to our guns and we got to figure out a better way of, of measuring brain death if we're going to stick with that as, as a, a way of declaring someone is dead or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, a Catholic in good conscience, though, can still donate his organs, right? Absolutely. And, um, and um, uh, I, I would just say that for, for, for now, yes, a Catholic in good conscience can donate their organs, and a, a Catholic in good conscience can receive those organs. I just think this is a, an ongoing discussion, that, uh, and the, the chapter is not yet completed okay. in it. And magisterial teaching is itself in flux on this. Well, you know, the, the, I, I would say that I think the church is open on issues of ethics and life. Historically, various documents uh, have been updated, and, and I think the church has, has demonstrated an openness to look at things once new uh, information is acquired. Okay. Flux may be too uh, pejorative a term. 
Right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think the, it's the more church solid. Is, the church is great. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the church. I love the church. I mean, yeah, I do too. What, what other organization in, in the entire world, the entire humanity has looked at all these things? You right. Know, it's just a treasure trove. It's just amazing. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. Let me let me ask some practical questions. Uh, and sure. that is anointing of the sick. Mm-hmm. Um. Where can it be practiced in an emergency situation? Uh, can can we have people in the emergency room anointing the sick? Uh, where do uh, priests and deacons go who uh, carry out this sacrament? Where can they go? Are they limited in the hospital? No, they're not. And and. I think it's important to make the the distinction that in, in its truest sense, the anointing of the sick is reserved only to priests because ideally the anointing of the sick also includes uh, confession. Now, that's sometimes right. that's, that's not right. possible. And, you know, if the patient's comatose, but yet the administration of that sacrament is properly done by a priest. So whether it's in the hospital bed or in the home or anywhere. Now, keep in mind, though, the church uh, doesn't necessarily say you have to be on your deathbed to receive the anointing of the sick. Anybody facing serious illness or, or serious surgery, it can appropriately receive the anointing. Um, I received it myself before I had uh, cancer surgery a number of years ago. And um, so so it's a beautiful sacrament and, and can be repeated and, and uh, used appropriately. It's not meant to be used for, for minor things, but any serious illness or, or injury, it's appropriately used. So the setting of it can vary, um, you know, tremendously. I I tell the story in a book of a of a man who received the anointing of the sick in the operating room while we're trying to get everything ready to do brain surgery on him. Wow! And it was very dramatic, and it was one of my favorite stories of of my career. <laughs> that's that's great. How, how about uh, when um, can a person receive Holy Communion as a person nears death? Um, when can you continue? When can you present viaticum? Yeah, that's a beautiful thing, viaticum. It's a very special form of, well, not the Eucharist, the Eucharist. It's a very special way of presenting the Eucharist that someone who truly is nearing the end of their earthly life and viaticum, you know, literally meaning food for the journey, uh, can be administered by, you know, uh, any lay person, any, um, well, I would say anybody who's a Eucharistic minister, otherwise does not have to be a priest or a deacon. There's a a rite associated with it that uh, does not necessarily need the presence of a priest or a deacon or other ordained uh, ministers. So uh, the beauty of viaticum um, is that um, as long as a person is um, awake enough that you can be assured that they are able to um, um, receive the Eucharist or even in some situations, the precious blood, it can be given and repetitively, um, uh, you know, until that is no longer possible. It's a really beautiful, beautiful uh, thing, viaticum. Another practical question people ask is, is about cremation. Um, hmm. Years ago, uh, I guess it was fairly black and white, uh, cremation, Catholics didn't practice cremation. Uh, apparently now uh, the church is more flexible on this. Uh, tell me why. Well, I would say that um, the church... Um, still maintains a, a strong preference for bodily burial, mm-hmm. burial uh, but um, is, um, some would say tolerates, maybe a too negative a word, but tolerates cremation or is okay with creation, um, or cremation, I'm sorry. Part of the church's um, initial um, reluctance to accept cremation kind of stemmed out of it. It was, a, it was a practice that was 
kind of encouraged by, you know, some secular uh, organizations uh, that the church really uh, had problems with. Um, and so, but there are practical concerns. Um, you know, there's no doubt that a bodily burial is more expensive than creation, cremation. And so I think that the church recognizes that. Um, that said, though, if someone is cremated, it still needs to be, the remains need to be treated with utmost dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't make, you know, artificial diamonds out of them. We don't wear them as an amulet around our neck or put them on yeah. the our mantle in a in an urn. It's 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 uh, if someone is cremated, they they still need to be properly interned. We don't scatter ashes either. You don't scatter ashes, yeah. right? Exactly. Don't scatter ashes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is something that is coming up uh, more and more. Uh, people want to know uh, what the church's attitude is on this, and uh, again, there's some measure of prudence uh, involved. Um, you emphasize the separation of body and soul in your definition of death. That's that's fundamentally how the church sees death as this unnatural separation between uh, body and soul, what can the dying person expect to experience as they approach death? What comes next? Well, um, you know, the church has traditionally taught that um, um, what is called the the four last things, and, and maybe people have heard that before, and and those four last things or what comes next, you know, include, you know, death, uh, which is followed uh, by judgment. And mm-hmm. and that judgment either leads to um, heaven or to, to hell. Um, traditionally, the four last things um, doesn't include purgatory um, because, you know, the, the, the idea is that if you're in purgatory, you will ultimately be in heaven. So, right, right. so that's the, the very traditional treatment of what happens when we die. We die, we're judged, and we go to heaven or we go to hell. And... Um, um, so that's what, again, this preparation for death uh, uh, begins, you know, at our baptism. That preparation of living a good life so that we have a good death is something that um, begins, you know, very, very early in, in, in life. Um, because um, ultimately we, we do, the church teaches very clearly that there is judgment that occurs after we die. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very clear on that. It- it, I mean, it's fair to say we we know we will all die, and there's going to be some measure of suffering associated with death. Uh, and I guess the question I have is, with hospice care, um, can you trust generally? Can you trust hospice care? And is that different than palliative care? Yeah, yes, I think you can trust hospice care, and. Um, um, I think that, um, yes, there's a difference between palliative care and hospice care. Hospice care first uh, came into um, common use not, not too terribly long ago, uh, 50s or in the 50s. And the idea is that if someone approaches death, um, they're um, allowed to die, you know, as uh, pain-free as possible in a setting that's comfortable. Um, all those things that we talked about that are good things and, and desirable things. And, and then once you're in hospice care, you also... Um, no longer receive active treatment for any diseases that come up, meaning even if you had a, an infection, pneumonia, or something like that, generally if you're in hospice care, um, you don't receive treatment for those things. 
Hospice care is a covered benefit from Medicare. That's a practical consideration uh, mm-hmm. to keep in mind. Um, people can receive hospice care in a variety of settings. Uh, in their home is the most typical place. You can receive hospice care in special hospice centers, and, and sometimes people are even under hospice care while they're in the hospital itself. So hospice can be a very good thing. Uh, I think what's a more recent development, I think has been a very welcome development, is what's called palliative care. And palliative care is is kind of an intermediate step between um, aggressive treatment of everything um, and versus no treatment uh, with hospice. Palliative care recognizes that the end of life is nearing, um, doesn't necessarily define how long that might be, but it allows also for ongoing active treatment, you know, yet while recognizing that that someone has a disease process that is likely going to lead to their death. So it's been a very welcome um Welcome development. Uh, pain control is a, a big part of both palliative care and hospice care mm-hmm. and um, uh, a very, very good development in medicine. Well, Steve, let me thank you again for this great contribution. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a blessing to so many Catholics. I hope it gets in their hands. And I thank you uh, for the work that you do and the work that you accomplished in the book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. It's really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Stephen Doran, it's called To Die Well. Everyone should have a copy of this. Thank you for being with us in Hour 1 of this edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on the conversations that we were having today and look back and find all of our other conversations from the last several days of this 2023 countdown. Uh, Steve Doran's book, To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life, is available in the online store at AveMariaRadio.net. And also would recommend you check out the work he's done with his wife, Sharon, on the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. More to come in the next hour with Tim O'Malley, The Four Dimensions of Eucharistic Culture. Uh, Our parishes are much more than collections of families or individuals. They are cultures. And this culture is a worldview that includes how we look at reality and how we live our lives as Catholics. When cultivated properly, our parishes form a culture that is uniquely Eucharistic. Tim O'Malley has identified four dimensions that help build this culture. He joins us in the next hour. Dr. Tim O'Malley is Professor of the Practice and Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and Academics Director, all of this at the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy, University of Notre Dame. Also works in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He's a busy guy, and is the author of several books, including Becoming a Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. More to come with Dr. Tim O'Malley in the next hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. 
This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you all, and welcome to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Continuing this 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon countdown, we're in the top three. This is the bronze medal, if you will, uh, interview for the year. And it's with Dr. Tim O'Malley from the University of Notre Dame, where he held several positions, and he's writing on the four dimensions of Eucharistic culture. He's got two short books that I'd highly recommend. The one that I'm holding right now, which is called Becoming a Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. He's got another one called Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? They're both from the Engaging Catholicism series that is put out by the McGrath Institute at Notre Dame. And they're great because they're really short, fairly easy reads, not super theologically dense, something that will just go over your head, but still very enriching. Great read to have that during your prayer time, during a holy hour. And like as I said, they're the focus of what we're talking about today. We'll be talking a lot, as I've been saying for over a year now, about the Eucharistic Congress that's in 2024. And we've been uh, discussing it with various guests over the years, and I think this is one of the best interviews we've done. Uh, Tim explores what does it mean to have a Eucharistic culture. Culture is one of those words that gets tossed around a lot, but what is exactly does it mean to be cultured? It's more than just you know listening to Mozart and having an appreciation for fine art and a taste for uh, nice wine. Uh, there's you talk about cultures in church. There's the cultures that we have in our own family cultures. There are cultures that we get from our heritage, whether it be you know France or Japan or Latin America or South Africa. There is cultures that we get based on the part of the country, even within the U.S. You know, the Midwest has a bit of a culture. The Southeast, the West, etc. All of those are part of this, but they're not the complete answer, and they're different than what it means to have a Eucharistic culture. And uh, Tim has what he calls four dimensions of Eucharistic culture. And I will quickly read the headlines just so that you know to be listening for that over the next hour. He talks about a sense of uncultured reverence for the celebration of Mass and the sacraments. He talks about an integral formation that does not reduce Eucharistic catechesis to explanation of doctrine exclusively, but also attends to the memory, imagination, understanding, desire, and will of our very own identity as a Eucharistic community. Uh, Tim also points out a transition from a privatized approach to Eucharistic celebration to a public or popular Catholicism that properly attends to work, festivity, and family in the act of Eucharistic worship. And finally, Tim points out the promotion of a Eucharistic solidarity in the parish in which the communion of love that is given by Jesus is explicitly shared with the world. Throughout this book, he has a lot of really important points. Another one being, and a lot of it, it's it's things that you, as soon as he says it, you're like, of course, that makes so much sense. And so we talk about all these different ways to get people back to church, whether it be through a, you know, a TV ad or a billboard or just going out and knocking on doors or standing on a street, street corner handing out holy cards and rosaries. All those things are very good. But if the person you know comes back to Mass for the first time in 15 years and they see that everybody's just kind of going through the motions and that the priest... And I've actually been at masses where priests have said things like, I'll do, I'll do a short homily because I know that there's NFL football coming on. When things like that happen, the person's going to be like, why am I wasting my time here? These people clearly don't um, uh, don't take this too seriously if they're acting like this. It was one of the saints, and I can't remember which one, that said that if we fully understood what was going on at mass, we would never want to leave. And as humans, we probably never fully will understand. And of course... We can't just be at Mass all day long. We have other things that we do need to do. But during our time at Mass, we really want to increase our reverence for the Eucharist. Um, 
back to this idea of culture, there's also in this book, I, I'm not going to have time to read them all in the rest of this intro, but one of the things we'll be exploring in this interview is what uh, Tim calls the 12 features of culture. As we help to understand what it means to have a culture in general, we can then understand what it means to have a Eucharistic culture. And what it means to say things like a Eucharistic culture is, inter is interested in every dimension of what it means to be human. So let's talk with Tim O'Malley. We're going to skip the news today and spend the next hour talking about the four dimensions of a Eucharistic culture. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number three. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Timothy O'Malley, a professor uh, of the practice. He's director of education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life and academic director of the uh, director's Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. Excuse me. He holds a concurrent appointment in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame and is the author of Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, and Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? You can follow him on Twitter at Timothy P. O'Malley. We'll have that linked at our site as well. Tim, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I, when you talk about Eucharistic culture, and I love that, um, because, of course, I, I believe the old line that uh, uh, cult uh, is the uh, the mother of culture. So <laughs> when you talk yeah. about Eucharistic culture, I like that. So Yeah, I got it from Augustine. Yeah, that so, was my insight, was cult and culture. Yeah, so. yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, you lead off uh, in your book, Becoming Eucharistic People, the hope and promise of parish life, you lead off asking the question, what is Eucharistic culture? So help us out. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think a Eucharistic culture, right, of course, is a parish, a school, an apostolate, living uh, life according to the gift of the Eucharist. I think it has what I would say is four dimensions that are really key and pivotal. Um, right, it's marked by reverence. Right, so any good culture is marked by cult, as you've said. And do we have reverence for the Eucharist? Do we understand the gift of love that's given in the sacraments of the Eucharist? Uh, do we celebrate it well? Uh, do we form people to live this culture right? Do we pass on the essentials? Right, that includes doctrine and practices mm -hmm. uh, throughout the total the dimension of our lives. It's about uh, a public thing, right? In the United States, religion is often treated privately, right. but for Catholicism, religion is public. So do you live it out in the public square, in your families, in your homes? And then lastly, does it have like that really public dimension, solidarity with the neighbor? Yeah. Um, right? Can we, can we understand that our politics, the way that we live together, is grounded in our worship? That's, that's great. Uh, how often... Um is it taught that way in adult uh, formation? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I think uh, since I wrote this, I think one of the things I find a lot of people is when they hear the Eucharist quite, quite properly, they think exclusively either of the Mass or of the Blessed Sacrament itself. But uh, I've always been really inspired by Benedict XVI, uh, and particularly in his uh, Sacramentum Caritatis, where, our, uh, where Benedict said, um, you know, every dimension of human life should find a place in the Eucharist. Yeah. And so I think this is really helpful for adults because we're trying to figure out how to live our lives and live in the world and how does our life of prayer and our life of faith link up with our jobs and our raising of kids and uh, all sorts of things. 
So really, I mean, the Eucharist Mass really does form us into a, a different a worldview, which is in many ways in contrast to what is the broad, whatever one might want to call it, the American way of life or, you know, the framework of liberal democracy. We're not just, quote, going to church. <laughs> when we go to Mass, we're being formed in a whole worldview. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's the whole kind of like what a sacrament is and what the Mass does for us. We make of our bodies, our whole lives into a living sacrifice. And, um, you know, I think that's, it's really a challenge for American Catholics is, you know, we're not just going to Mass and then going to brunch and then living right. the rest of our lives. Yeah. It's everything. Everything has to be infused with this mystery of love. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to come back to that. Uh, let me go to the question of the nature of the Eucharist itself as a sacrament. Um, I know that over the last, since well, since the Second Vatican Council, anyway, there have been those who have uh, tried to see in the Eucharist uh, many things, and in some cases, there's been a reluctance to talk about the sacrament of the Eucharist as real presence. Um, there's no way of avoiding real presence. That's the Catholic understanding, right? That's right, yeah. I think uh, you can think about it as real presence, true presence. Uh, it's a distinctive mode of presence. When people, a lot of the objections are, well, Christ is present in the Scriptures, right? And he's present in creation. Well, of course, the, the Church teaches that. But the true presence, or the real presence, is the distinctness of the kind of presence that the Eucharist is. It's not um, a sign that leads us into an encounter, but it's the true presence, substantial presence of our Lord, who has transformed bread and wine into his very personal presence through the words of the priest. So it's a distinctive mode of presence, and I think a lot of the rejection of the language um, doesn't quite get this distinction right. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. It, it, the, this, there are different modes of Christ's presence with us, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, no one who, who adores the Eucharist is saying, well, I shouldn't encounter him in Scripture, right? <laughs> right, um, right. Of course he speaks to us in the Word. There's a reason why at Mass, with the Book of the Gospels, we possess with a candle in front of it, and we incense that book, not because we like books, but because we think it's the Lord who speaks to us. Um, but it's just the distinction of the kind of presence that the Eucharist is. Uh, and I think that one of the problems often in theology today is the lack of the ability to make subtle distinctions. Yeah, yeah. And while we're on some objections that people have raised, you've talked about objections to Eucharistic adoration, which actually has been raised recently regarding um, the Eucharist revival. So you write out, you write, the Eucharist is meant to be, you're, you're speaking here of these objections. One of them is the Eucharist is meant to be eaten, not looked at. How do you respond to that objection? Yeah, I mean, the thing about objections, right, as St. Thomas Aquinas notes, there's some truth to it, right? So St. Albert the Great wrote a whole book on, on what it means to eat the Lord uh, on the body of the Lord, and he has like a whole chapter on digestion. Um, that's actually so very long. So, and in fact, right, up to like high medieval theology wanted people to receive the Eucharist more. But it's, the problem is that it seems to make two um, 
big of a distinction between uh, looking and eating, right? So, you know, of course one should eat the Eucharist. He wants to be united with us. Right. But that union is also experienced in gazing with love. And, mm-hmm. you know, our, our senses work in a variety of ways. So when I gaze at the Blessed Sacrament, right, I'm in gratitude for the gift of the Eucharist, for his presence dwelling among us. It doesn't mean then that I would never receive the Eucharist because I'm looking. It's not an either-or. Right. It can actually be both hands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you know anybody that does Eucharistic adoration and doesn't go to Mass? Yeah, um, I raised that, and actually someone reached out to me, and they raised a really good point. So yes, I don't, really. No. Um, but actually, what I, what I realized is, uh, what was raised to me is that a number of those who, for example, suffer, like who have received or uh, suffered from sexual abuse in the Church, have a really hard time going to Mass. Um, and they actually receive a lot of comfort in Eucharistic adoration alone. Sure. So it was, a, it was another reason, actually, I think, why it's a really valuable practice for the Church today, is yeah. the space where if you're just coming back, where it's hard to come back, you can be there and be there with the Lord in communion with the Church, Very good. even if you're not fully ready. Yeah. Very good. Another objection uh, that you point out that uh, some people have raised, Eucharistic adoration is passive. It's not active. Yes. So this passive, right, it, it says that like, you're just looking. Um, and I think the problem with this is a bad understanding of what passive is. Yes, you can passively look at the Eucharist. You can also passively go to Mass. Um, but uh, there's always a kind of activity in looking, and anyone who goes to adoration regularly knows that, you know, your imagination's at work in the midst mm-hmm. of adoration, mm-hmm. and you're thinking and pondering and wondering. You know, it's, it, it is active, not to mention you're often singing songs or doing the divine praises, right? Um, so, so there's all sorts of things that are actually rather active about it, just sure. as much. And so Liturgy is always active and passive at once, in my assessment. Mm-hmm. And objection number three, Jesus is present among the poor, not only in the Eucharist, so why put so much focus on the host? Yeah, Christ is hidden in the poor. We do not recognize him at once. Christ is especially hidden in the Eucharist. And in fact, in my assessment, the more time you spend with his hidden presence in the Eucharist, the more you come to recognize his presence in the hungry and the thirsty and the child who comes to you in need, uh, the one who adores the Eucharist is called evermore to give themselves yeah. to the poor. That, that attitude has been attributed to Mother Teresa, uh, St. Mother Teresa now. So, yes. Yeah, yeah no, she, she has been a gift for the Church on this exact point. Yeah, yeah. Objection. And a million other things. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Objection number four. The Eucharist isn't meant to be treated as an object, and therefore we shouldn't have processions or spend so much time looking at the Eucharist. Instead, we should participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. So, Yeah, this is another one of those, I think, artificial distinctions. We should absolutely participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, one should offer the sacrifice of the Mass. Um, with the the priest every time you go to Mass. Um, But you're not treating the Eucharist as an object by participating in a procession, because after all, it is the personal presence of our Lord. He is there dwelling among us. And so the procession is an extension of his sacrificial love and presence to the world, Um, not, not something distinct or totally distinct from the sacrifice itself. Yeah, very good. Uh, In... Among Catholic theologians uh, over the last generation, uh, has the mystery of transubstantiation 
been uh, uh, downplayed, or is it still pretty uh, much a firm, uh, uh, ob- firm topic for theologians? Yeah, I think for a while it wasn't, and I think that's part of what led to the problem, is that there was uh, a misunderstanding of that doctrine, right? To say, like, okay, transubstantiation is just complicated philosophy explaining away the mystery of the Eucharist. But if you pay attention to what St. Thomas Aquinas does with transubstantiation and how subtle it is, um, in fact, right, everything that a Catholic theologian today wants to affirm about the Eucharist is made possible through transubstantiation, right? That it is a... Uh, sacramental presence, a substantial presence that is not a physical change? Absolutely. That's what St. Thomas says. Um, that this little piece of created matter is taken up into God's life? Absolutely. That's what St. Thomas says. Uh, and so there was like a, a kind of just a rejection, I think, of any philosophical category often in theology, um, and that led to a sort of loss of of like being able to articulate the gift of this doctrine to people today. Yeah, yeah. So that you you discredit the doctrine by claiming it's got some philosophical characters to it uh, that are no longer accepted. Um, hold it there, if you would, yeah. Tim. We'll come back and continue the conversation, Dr. Timothy O'Malley. We're looking at the Eucharist. The best. 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 The Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number three. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Timothy O'Malley, and we are taking a look at Eucharist and developing a Eucharistic culture. He's the author of Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, and also Real, also Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? Uh you know, in the, the there's still arguments going on uh, about uh, the liturgy, and uh, self-identified traditionalists frequently will say that the Novus Ordo is not sufficiently doesn't doesn't breed reverence, but um, reverence has to be at the very beginning of understanding the Eucharist, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, reverence is integral to the whole act of worship, right? Um, this yeah. great uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, who has a great book on liturgy and personality, notes that reverence is actually the supreme virtue of everyone. And therefore, any act of worship must be this way because there's some sort of transcendent end. And so, yeah, I think it has to be the sort of heart of worship. Um, and in that sense, right, um, what I'm really attracted to is the ways that Worship actually starts with a conversion, a personal conversion, that is part of the form of the Mass, but not reducible to the form of the Mass, right? right? So I was just with a bunch of focused missionaries in northern Michigan. We were not worshiping in what I would call the most architecturally beautiful space in the world, in an upper room of a building that is um, used to house student workers in the summer for 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 like a ski camp, and... They had mass there every day, and it was profoundly worship because the people, or reverent rather, uh, because people there actually really believed that this was true, that it had an, an impulse, a, a, a dimension of their life. It, it, it was important. And so that reverence came through, um, even if the architectural space was not perfect. And mm-hmm. I think that's 
what we all must have to learn again, I think that's one of the things I'd love for the Eucharistic revival to do is to invite each of us to this return to deeper worship, that what happens at Mass really matters for our life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, you avoid reverence allows you to avoid banality. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And banality, of course, can unfold in any form of the Mass, right? I mean, banality uh, certainly took place before the pre-conciliar liturgy. It, <laughs> it took place in 1200. It took place... Banality is not new. It's, it's idolatry. It's our own recognition that this isn't that important to our lives. Uh, and so that's the conversion, I think, that's really important for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, or at least me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we we often speak out of and write out of our own experiences here. Exactly. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is universally true, as I as I know. <laughs> um, prayer uh, is of course central uh, to worship, and so oftentimes you hear people say prayer is well, that's just talking to God. Well. What's the difference between praying and talking? Yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, prayer is a kind of talking to God, except I think the major difference is we're talking to God and not, like, I'm not talking to, like, right now I'm talking to Al Cresta. And (laughs) I hear your voice. Um, If we wanted to meet up one day, we could. Um, In in person, it's doable. It's, It's a possibility. You know, when we're talking to God, right, we don't actually hear anything back. And uh, I think one of the things that we have to do is, unlike, you know, in some sense I have to prepare for this conversation, but we can wing it a bit, um, to talk to God takes a lot of preparation, right? It takes uh, being comfortable with silence. It takes getting to know Scripture enough that you can savor its inner mystery and not just the words that are there, that are said. Um, It's... uh, learning to just delight in the presence of the Beloved. Um, Mm -hmm. These dimensions of prayer are integral. And I actually think, you know, connected to our topic of the Eucharist, if we're going to pray the Mass well, then we actually have to pray well, right? The biggest preparation for praying the Mass well is learning to pray well. And that means the Mass can't do everything. It can't be the sole source of our spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Um, We do need adoration. We need the Rosary. We need the Divine Office. I mean, in some sense, um, if I was going to do a revival after the Eucharistic revival, I would do a revival of the office, yeah. right? The yeah. Psalms and the marking of time and the sanctification of time. All of these things are necessary for prayer. So I think, pre- like, unlike you, I-, I can prepare pretty quickly, but with our Lord, it takes a lot of time to prepare my heart to talk to, to God, yeah. uh, to praise God, to, right. to love God. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned silence and contemplation. Um, that's something that seems to be uh, less less and less uh, – it comes less and less easily uh, these days uh, because so oh, much – uh, you know, we, we are surrounded by – we're in a cocoon of electronic communications, and um, people talk about what they see online and social media, and there's the fear of missing out, uh, and – I, I actually wonder, I'm, I'm old <laughs> by comparison, but I really wonder about young people uh, today who, whose lives are formed largely uh, well, through intense social media 
exposure. Yeah, it's a, do they it's no so hard silence? To slow down. Yeah, yeah. There's no silence. There's not the silence of the interior life. Everything is full of noise. It's why it's really interesting. This has been a complaint or discussion for a long time. I love this little work by Romano Guardini called Liturgy and Liturgical Formation. And in 1920, 1930s, he's saying we got to get people back to the mountains and go mountain hiking and spend time away from the noise of the world in, like, spaces that are quiet. And so, you know, I think we need a detox, right? A detox yeah. from the noise. A, a detox from the Twitter discourse, right, which quickly, or whatever it's called today, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we need a detox. We don't actually have to speak all the time. And we don't always have to respond to everything, right? There's like, we need space to be alone and to just dwell rather than to immediately react and, and move and make noise. And so, yeah, I, I think we're at a crisis of contemplation. It's a crisis of a contemplative life. And really, like, theologians and, and, and uh, the magisterium have been saying this now for like 70 or 80 years. Yeah. It seems that we keep upping the speed of life and upping the, the noise of things rather than slowing down. Yeah. No, it's, it is something, and, and you're right. Uh, we've had a wonderful teaching uh, on this uh, need to slow down and to recover contemplation and silence. Um, so, I'm, again, that's one of the things that I think we're all hoping uh, this Eucharistic revival will uh, is it, not only dependent upon that, but it will also spawn more of it. Uh, contemplative attitudes yeah um, i think it will at the, yeah the, the the more it does the local level the better so yeah. i'm grateful for you bringing that up i mean if if we start it then it can happen right the world can change through our action do you know if more and more parishes are having 24-hour eucharistic adoration yeah i think certainly a lot of parishes are moving towards it there's different degrees you know, I think out of the revival, for a lot of places, it's like, well, can you do Eucharistic adoration yeah. uh, at all? Yeah. Uh, for some, can you up the game to doing par- Eucharistic adoration more frequently within your parish? Mm-hmm. Some, it's 24 hours a day. Um, you know, my own parish has a 24-hour adoration chapel, yeah. so we have it, uh, and a lot of parishes have moved towards it. But we still have, I, I guess, you know, the article I wrote about the problems of the objections to adoration is that at least among a lot of clergy, there's still a distrust of adoration. Really? Um, And I think a lot of it was learned in some of the objections that were said. And I'm trying to convince people that you don't actually have to be as worried about adoration as you think. This is not some rejection of the Mass, but it's a a springing up from the people of God, and they want more time alone in silence before God. Um, It's that craving for silence. And so, yeah, parishes are, are turning to such adoration, um, in order to be alone with God. Um, and I think you're going to see, I, I think if the Eucharistic revival is successful, part of we'll know its success in its fruits is through more adoration, whether that's 24 hours a day in a chapel, or simply, you know, to be honest, for a lot of parishes, is it once a month happening quite publicly? Mm-hmm. That might actually be a quite intense growth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you sometimes wonder... Uh, what people are thinking when they uh, are reje- reject the idea of Eucharistic adoration. I mean, does does anybody really think that those who participate in Eucharistic adoration are simply unaware that the Mass is the presupposition of Eucharistic yeah. adoration? You know? So Yeah, I think there's like a reluctance to see that a lot of the things that are being retrieved today after the Second Vatican Council, no. things like adoration 
are not being retrieved in exactly the same spirit that they were before the council. Um, right? So these are people who want extra time with Christ. Yeah. They've made the personal decision to be with him. They know the Mass inside and out. They pray the Mass at least weekly, but probably more likely yeah. at least every day. And so I think we have to recognize that there's a new, it's a new group of people in front of us, and we can't keep having the same fights that we had in 1960 <laughs> over the new group of people in front of us who are just quite different. I've learned this from my undergraduates. There, it's the great gift of teaching young people. Yeah. As I'm increasingly aware that something new is going on, I'm also increasingly aware that I am not young. Those are the two things that uh, become uh, obvious to me. I am no longer among the young. <laughs> do you have any idea, this is more of a sociological question, but do you know um, how many parishes have to contend with this, the, the so-called liturgy wars? Yeah, I'm not sure on a sociological level. I see it a lot when I visit presbyterates, when I do pre-convocation okay. yeah. and things like that. Um, it's certainly a topic in diocesan discussions. Um, there's a conflict between older priests and younger priests, mm -hmm. and it's often always ready to bubble over, even if it's, you know, once they're in a room together. Yeah. And so I think it is a major issue in dioceses. I don't think it's a major issue in the day-to-day -day life of your average Catholic. Um, I, one of the theses I have is that a lot of the things that, uh, especially those of us who are religious professionals in any way, shape, or form, sure, yeah. to, it's a lot different than our, at the parish level, right? So like my parish, people are probably more aware of, you know, not of the liturgy wars, but of like they're, they're like really concerned to go to church and meet Jesus. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we're not having wars, even though people might disagree with things, that their major interest is there. Um, but I think, at least amongst clergy, there there's conflicts going on, and okay. I think that it will be the challenge to deal with those conflicts. Okay, okay. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Timothy O'Malley, talking about becoming a Eucharistic people. Uh, he's also written, that's the name of one of his books, another one is Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? We're going to continue conversation. Again, this is part of the grand preparation for the Eucharistic Congress coming up uh, next year, July 17th to 21. And you can get more information at EucharisticCongress.org. That's EucharisticCongress.org. Uh, I'm Al Cresta. We'll be back. we continue focus on the Eucharist. The best. 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 The Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number three. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, continuing our conversation with Dr. Timothy O'Malley. Um, forming Eucharist, a Eucharistic culture, uh, again, beginning with parish life, but you've got in Chapter 3 of Becoming Eucharistic People, Tim, I love the way you started out. It, the chapter is called A Culture of Integral Eucharistic Formation. And you start out saying, Eucharistic catechesis in the Roman Catholic Church is lacking. This is not because sacramental formation for First Communion is poor. Eucharistic catechesis is lacking because it is not meant exclusively for second graders receiving their First Holy Communion. So... Let's ask, I'll ask you the blunt question. What is integral Eucharistic formation? Yeah, so I, you know, I think one of the things that we really need to understand with it is, uh, you know, it's 
the whole, our whole lives are meant to be a Eucharistic offering. And, you know, if we stop at the age of seven or eight, and that's the last time that we've really thought about that, yeah. then one of the real dilemmas is that then the rest of our lives are left out of it. We kind of remain at the level of a seven or eight-year-old relative to our own Eucharistic spirituality, our life, our, our theological reflection on the Eucharist. And so the task, I think, you know, what is it? It's the kind of formation that continues throughout your life so that you have a deeper and richer understanding of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. It will involve the arts. It will involve a deeper study of sacred scripture. You'll want to know what the liturgical texts are and what they do. Uh, You'll want to reflect on the Eucharist throughout key moments of your life. You know, what's the relationship between Eucharist and marriage when you're getting married? So it's all these kind of moments along one's journey, I think, that, you know, we enter into and therefore, right, we, it has to continue through our whole life. That's what makes it an integral Eucharistic formation. Yeah, yeah. So you, it, it actually, it, it's about forming an identity, right, as a Eucharistic people. Absolutely. And it's personal, and it's communal, it's families, it's keeping, uh, coming back and thinking through our life as a Christian and committing to it in light of the Eucharist. Yeah. You know, this is... This just makes so much sense. I mean, you know that uh, the Eucharist was uh, was a mark of the very early church. You know, the teaching, apostolic teaching, fellowship, prayer, and uh, breaking the bread. So, I mean, the earliest communities that are described in the New Testament are were clearly Eucharistic communities, and it seems that that has always been a mark of the, I mean, the teaching church has always made it clear that Eucharist is central. And is it, we learn a big emphasis after the second Vatican council was about in its in sacrosanctum concilium, this idea of deliberate active participation some people mock that phrase, but I think that's absolutely essential. You, you have to be present. You have to be all there. You've had to have made space in your life for reverence and awareness. You've learned how to pray the Mass. I don't see how that can be avoided. Why are some people put off by the phrase uh, full active participation? Yeah, I think one of the reasons people were put off by it, or at least they, you know, was a misunderstanding of what it meant, right? So active participation doesn't mean frenetic activity. Um, (laughs) It doesn't mean everybody has to be acting as in they have a role to play. Um, But, you know, as uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, Joseph Rossinger noted continually throughout his work, right, the... Um, it is an active participation. Of course, God is the primary actor, but we right. have to attune ourselves to that. And so the task is, can you tune your mind and your body to one another when you genuflect? Do you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it? Uh, when you fold your hands in prayer, um, have you meditated upon what this means? Uh, all of this is part of full, conscious, and active participation. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't just Vatican II that did this. It was the fruit of the 19th, 20th century sort of thinking about the roots of theology and the liturgy and the liturgical movement. Yep. Um, and so you don't have to be afraid of it. I mean, it doesn't mean everybody has to do everything. It doesn't mean we need 
uh, every single person to be elector at once. Uh, that's not what it means. It means that we need to learn to attune our minds and our hearts and um, and our bodies. And it, it, it's a it's it's the thing that we need to be formed for in the act of worship. Yeah. You also write on the role of memory, imagination, and experience here. Uh, give, go into that with us. Uh, what role uh, does memory play? It, it doesn't just mean repetition of words. It means more than that. But what is memory? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you were to ask me, like, why adult catechesis hasn't happened, why it's not as good as it could be or should be, my hypothesis is this, is that, we think catechesis is reducible to telling people things about things. Yeah. And while that is not an intrinsically evil thing, um, in fact, Christian formation, for, total formation in the gospel involves all of what it means to know. And what does it mean to know? Well, it involves our memories. Memories mean not just what happened to us once upon a time. Our memory involves, right, like all those images we've taken in, um, right? Every time we hear the gospel and we hear it preached, it becomes part of us and it becomes part of who we are. And I think you said earlier, our identity, right? That's who we are, yeah. our, our memories. And it, it works as much through image as it does through anything else. Um, it's part of the imagination, right? Is that we can think and understand and see deep, deeper meaning in each of the images that we've taken up throughout our whole lives. Um, and, of course, all of this leads, most importantly, to desire or love, the spirit that comes into our hearts. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we think about adult Eucharistic formation in this way, we're not just going to tell people again and again what the Mass means, right? But we're going to introduce them to the art and to images, to poetry, to every single way that the Church has um, reflected on the Eucharist in her history so that we can muse on it, become it, uh, give our lives over to it. So it's this whole holistic dimension of what it means as a human being to know. Yeah. St. Augustine uh, took memory very seriously uh, for the same reasons you're mentioning? Yeah. I mean, I did my doctorate on Augustine, so I've been uh, beautifully haunted by him. But, but, you know, our our memories are... Memory is are those images by which we make sense of life, by which we tell our story. And his confessions you know, uh, isn't just him remembering what happened to him once upon a time. In the act of remembering, he's honestly acknowledging before God who he was, but in an act of praise that he could become different, um, that he can develop new images of himself through the gift of the Spirit that's poured in. And and so that act of remembering, and, and, you know, you could think about it as reflecting upon experience, but, you know, in in a very thoughtful way, this is part of what it means to become ever more Catholic. Very good. Very good. That makes tremendous sense. Um, I want to come back to uh, what you've written in real presence. What does it mean and, and why does it matter? And back to this, the question of transubstantiation again. Would you mind giving us a little bit of a history of uh, theology here? Uh, you sure. often hear people say, I, I've heard people say, oh, you know, transubstantiation, that was just something that was picked up, you know, in the Middle Ages to end a dispute. And, you know, it could have gone a different way. There's no reason we have to be tied down to the phrase transubstantiation. 
maybe we can come up with some new phrases, transfiguration, you know. Um, tell us a little bit about the medieval debate that is usually cited uh, when people are trying to escape the doctrinal uh, significance of transubstantiation. Sure, yeah, and early medieval uh, monks were having a little bit of a fight. Um, the patristic categories, the early church categories of sign and symbol weren't making sense to the way that people were relating to the Eucharist at the time. There were Eucharistic miracles, and there were processions, and there was adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and uh, it became clear that the categories didn't hold, and part of the debate was, well, then what is the Eucharist? And um, what, how can it be his presence, and what kind of presence is it? And the, the term transubstantiation was chosen actually well before St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was chosen because it aptly represented uh, what what would be a, a sort of reasonable, devoted, but not too not like too physicalistic account of the Eucharist, right? Which is the body, uh, the bread and the wine become at the level of substance. That it's what they are. Substance isn't visible. It's what you see, and you see, like, when I look at a tree, I see leaves, and I see bark. Um, but what do I see that I call this this tree? Uh, I, it, it's not merely visible. It's what something is. And so what something is of the bread and wine become entirely the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. And the miracle of the Eucharist, and this is why transubstantiation is important, is that the species, what they look like and, and taste like, stay behind. Um, so the substance changes, but the accidents remain. And that means that Christ comes to feed us with what seems like bread and wine. Um, those signs are there, right? Um, nonetheless, he gives his full self to us. So it avoids two extremes. One is cannibalism, right? That in eating the body and blood, of, or in consuming the Eucharist, you're actually secretly eating uh, Jesus. Yeah. Right. Physically, you're physically gnawing on him. Um, versus, well, he's just you're just thinking about him in your mind, and yeah. you're like, oh, that was a beautiful thought. Um, no, right? He's there, but in a way that we can receive him under the signs of bread and wine. Yeah. And so, to me, there's a reason the church still says it's the most apt way, the most perfect way of speaking about Eucharistic presence. And all the other ways that have been suggested, transfiguration, consubstantiation, transfinalization, are raising important points, but they can actually be handled under the doctrine of transubstantiation. Yeah, yeah. they don't negate uh, transubstantiation. They need not. Not at all. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. And I think a lot of people have just misunderstood transubstantiation. They think St. Thomas, for example, is just taking up some ideas from Aristotle right. and throwing them into his text. Yeah. It's not Aristotle. That if there's anything I'd want people to take from this, whatever you're getting in transubstantiation, it's definitely not Aristotle. Do the, what do we know about Eucharistic devotion in the lives of the saints? We know that every saint has Eucharistic devotion. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's sort of like Marian devotion. Uh, it's there, and there's a reason why it's there, right? Um, uh, certainly it takes different forms in different times. Uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, whom I love, wrote beautifully on the Eucharist in his mystagogical catechesis. Um, I'm very devoted to the saints like St. Mechtild of Hackeborn and uh, St. Gertrude the Great of Helfsta. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. They spoke beautifully in the vernacular about the Eucharist and its connection to the Sacred Heart and their own reception of Jesus. 
Uh, John Henry Newman speaks beautifully of the Eucharist. And of course, we have modern saints with profound Eucharistic devotion. And so, you know, I think what we know is enough to say that to be a saint is to have Eucharistic devotion. Yeah. Very good. Tim, thanks. Uh, it's very helpful. I, I love the books, by the way. I hope they're oh, getting. Thanks, yeah, I hope. I mean, I hope they're getting great distribution and readership. They're rich. They're very rich. And, I really uh, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we'll talk again, Lord willing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Timothy O'Malley. And uh, again, we'll have the books available in the online bookstore. Remember, uh, July 17th to 21, the Eucharistic Congress next year, 2024. Uh, you can go to EucharisticCongress.org to learn more, EucharisticCongress.org. I'm Al Cresto. Over the last two hours of Cresta in the Afternoon, go to AveMariaRadio.net. You can follow up on those conversations. We'll have more information about the Eucharistic Revival. You can get a hold of uh, Tim O'Malley's books, Becoming a Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, as well as Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? Also, I'll have uh, Steve Doran's work about What Does It Mean to Die Well and some articles relating to the conversation we had about this uh, these skyrocketing cases of euthanasia in Canada. Euthanasia is not yet at that point in the U.S. It's only legal in a few states, but it's important to be able to have these conversations in mind because as you see these things start to crop up more and more in the legal system, you'll be able to explain why the church teaches what it does about the end of life. Once again, Happy New Year. Blessed Feast of Our Mary, Mother of God. We'll be back tomorrow with the final day of this countdown. Until then, have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506. Or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.